The Missouri General Assembly's legislative session is at its halfway point, and some of the things legislators are proposing will have a profound effect on the St. Louis region. One of the people making some of these decisions is State Representative Gene Evans. The Manchester Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is on assignment today, so we have as our special guest host. It's me, Jenny Simone, uh, St. Louis Public Radio's Diversity Fellow. And after recording like 3,000 podcasts with St. Louis Mayor hopefuls, we are returning to the state legislature, and we have as our special guest for the first time. Gene Evans. State representative from the 99th District. 99th District, Manchester Valley Park. So Southwest St. Louis County. That was going to be my first question of what is the 99th <laughs> district, but you seem to have, you seem to have cut me off at the pass. Um, you were you were elected last year. Is yes, that, uh, you, you were you came in first in a four way Republican primary. That's right, four way primary, and then I did have a a general opponent, a Democratic opponent in it's, the general election. I was just going to say it's kind of an interesting district because many. Uh, Western and Central St. Louis County House districts tend to lean Republican, but yours is not one that I could say is like super Republican. What, what would, would that be fair to say? I think that's fair. I, I'm just west of Deb Lavender's district, which is definitely a Democratic district. And I have a, a large uh, municipality. Or not, it's not that big, but I have Valley Park, mm. which has a fair amount of union and trades people and is pretty economically diverse. I think my district's fairly diverse, but it's also probably, you know, per capita income or if you looked at, like, the cost of housing, more on the low end for West County. I mean, it's not on the low end for St. Louis County, but it's not it's not a wealthy Republican district, as some people assume. It's a working class Republican district. That's Work, working class, well. middle class. Well said. Better than I said it. Yeah. It is definitely a working class. And working to middle class, there's some, some parts of it are... Definitely a little higher end, um, but I like it. It's where I live. I've lived there for 16 years. Mm-hmm. I love it, and it's it's near enough in that it only took me 20 minutes to get here to the studio. I, I can be downtown at a Cardinals game if there's no traffic in 25 minutes um, and get to St. Charles in 25 minutes, so it's fairly central. Yeah, for full disclosure, my uh, uncle and aunt used to live in Manchester Baldwin area, mm-hmm. so I think I've traveled through your district often as like a like a 10 and 11-year-old, so, you know. <laughs> Has it been that long since you've been out to our beautiful district? It, well, they no longer live there, oh, okay. so so yes, it has been a while, but, um, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a beautiful district. Well, people know my district, or if, they, if I want to tell them where I live or where the district is, I usually identify the corner pub, which is at the corner of Big Bend and Doherty Ferry, it has become a landmark in in that area, and people uh, go there to enjoy beverages and food. 
That's probably a plug for them. Sorry about that. Or good for them. That's a plug for them. (laughs) The tens and tens of listeners will definitely be well known. (laughs) I am interested kind of how you decided to get involved in politics, because I think I met you during the election cycle. And you kind of mentioned that you you have a, a, a private sector background, but you've been interested and involved behind the scenes in politics for a while. So like, maybe not. A little bit. (laughs) So I've always been interested. I actually grew up um, in a Democratic household. You know, my grandfather was in a union. My mom was in a union. Uh, They're Southsiders. And both my parents went to Roosevelt High School. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I remember when I was growing up asking my mom, what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats? I don't get it. You know, why are we Democrats? And she said, well, Democrats want change and they want to make the country better. And Republicans want the status quo and they want to help rich people. So I was like, well, I want to be a Democrat then, right? Because that was how it was explained to me. And, and interestingly enough, one of the reasons I'm a Republican is because I want change and I feel like we've become the party of change. But I, I've been a Republican for a long time. I, I started shifting away from the Democratic Party once I became an adult, traveled overseas visited uh, and lived in some other countries and experienced some of the more progressive policies that I think the progressives and Democrats want here and felt like they weren't working. The other thing was um, paying taxes. You know, when when you're self-employed and you write a check for your taxes, I think sometimes it weighs on you a little heavily. When you actually write it out every quarter or every year instead of having it withheld, at least you're more cognizant of it. So... Um, between my values and some of my experiences, I gradually became first an independent and then a conservative, and now I would say I'm a Republican. But I'm a, I'm a conservative before I'm a Republican, which you will hear a lot of us who, who are Republicans now <laughs> that will was, say that. Well, not to twist the knife onto this this moment more, but that does bring back memories of 2008 where my good friend Brock Olivo told me he was a Republican for now because he <laughs> believed in hard work. He believed in values, and his platform would surface in due time. But that is kind of being mean, and Brock is doing great right now. So, Jenny, why don't you ask the next question? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) so kind of what you had mentioned earlier when we were in the green room, that um, we're sort of seeing this big movement on Democratic or, like, more liberal sides Mm -hmm. to stand up, to do marches, to protest, to start getting a lot of people into office. Um, I'm interested to hear from the Republican side, I mean, there are quite a few female um, Republican legislators in office right. in Jeff City. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, my daughter and I, so I have a 23-year-old daughter who is married and lives in Tulsa, and she's home this weekend, and we were just having this discussion again about kind of the, the progressive and the Republican. And I have to say, my daughter had zero interest in politics, would not watch the news with me or anything for years. And has this is kind of a newfound thing, particularly probably since I ran for office. But the other thing is she's finding so many of her friends her age that are very progressive. And she asked me, you know, Mom, are you a feminist? Are we, are we feminists? Because I've got all these girlfriends now who say they're feminists. And I said, I'll, I don't claim to be a feminist. I just live it. Okay? So I'm an independent person. I don't have to go on a march to be independent. I just have to live independently. And as she said, she was raised to believe that she could do anything she wanted as long as she was willing to work for it. So some people would say that's feminist. I say that's just being proud of who you are and becoming the best that you can be, whatever it is. And I don't really need to put a label on it. And I think people are a little quick to 
throw labels on things and I am all about empowering women to be the best that they can be, but I also want to empower men to be the best that they can be. And that doesn't mean that biases don't exist. And, and if, if, if you're a woman, woman in my age and you try to say that you've never experienced bias, I really envy you because I, or, or you're lying because it, it, I, I just I don't think that's true. However, if you dwell on it and you make yourself a victim, I don't, you don't feel better and you don't get anywhere. So to me, it's about... Be, being the best that I can be and trying to lift up other people around me, be, be they men or women. Now, also, I you know, I'm a Republican. I, I'm supporting paid leave. I co-signed on a, a, a bill that uh, Representative Hannah Kelly has for paid leave for women. I believe in equal pay. I, I don't shy away from those things, but I'm also pro-life. And it really disgusts me that there are people who are part of this so-called women's movement who don't want anything to do with me because I'm pro-life. And that right there makes me shy away from that. Whether they're pro-choice or pro-life doesn't mean I like them or dislike them. But why should they exclude me because of that one part of my belief? So I don't get too controversial here, but uh, I'm proudly pro-life. I'm proudly pro-woman. And proud Republican. Yeah, I would say that they, they may exclude you because a lot of the people in these marches are against Donald Trump and Republicans right now. And the fact that you're a Republican may hurt you more than being opposed to abortion rights. But, you know, that I, makes I, sense. I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just because I think so. I did a lot of coverage on the Women's March. Sorry, go ahead. Or um, I did a lot of coverage on the Women's March. And I think a lot of the conversations that go on in there are about how can we bring in more people? How can we include more people? And it resulted in thousands of folks showing up in downtown to march. I'm sure some people from your district. But um, I guess, like, how are you as a legislator trying to bridge those gaps? Similarly to how, I mean, I don't know if your answer is, yes, I'm trying to bridge those gaps the same way that they are, or if you even think that they are. Well, you know what's interesting about that? And, and I've, I've had this conversation with several people when they ask me, like, what, what's it like down there? Because we see this divisiveness in our country. I don't feel that at all in Jefferson City. So, you know, from the freshman bus tour on, I made great friends on both sides of the aisle. And um, there are a couple of, of Democrats that are some of the most progressive in their party that I absolutely adore and I embrace them for who they are and I I support them even when I disagree with them and you know Bruce Franks Peter Meredith uh, great people whom I I respect and I 100% believe that we want the same things right we want all people lifted up we want better jobs we want better schools we want safer streets we just sometimes disagree about how to get there. So, and we get that, like when we're down there and there's been some heated debates and there were some heated debates yesterday and, you know, some people were upset because they take this personally and they're very passionate about that. And I respect that. And I think it must be very frustrating when you're in such a minority in the legislator, legislature, but um, just because I disagree with them on how to get there doesn't mean I dislike them and, and, we don't have that big of a divide. And I think if you talk to other legislators, they would say the same thing. Like, it doesn't matter where, where you are politically. Now, there are some people that don't get along and dislike each other. 
but they're on both sides of the aisle. Like there could be somebody that you that really gets under your skin, and it doesn't mean it's because they're a Democrat. It might be because they're a Republican. It could be they're, they're, it could just because you don't like them. Yeah. You know, it's just normal. But it's much less divided down yeah. there. And I don't think that answers your question. So tell me your question again. Well, I'm just I'm thinking about um, how how are you building towards more unity as a legislature? But I'm as a legislator. But I'm also wondering. I wonder if that perspective is because you haven't been in Jeff City for years and years and years, right? I mean, I, I wonder if... Well, and I was told that, but I didn't know it till I got down there. You don't really know what it's like till you get down there. But you, if you talk to people who've recently left the legislature, people who've been there for, for several years, they'll tell you privately that some of their best friends are on the other side of the aisle. That That is... Um, and, you know, then people respect different statewide office holders for who they are. I know that Chris Coster had a lot of friends and people who respected him who were on our, si- our side of the aisle. Um, that doesn't mean they voted for him, but it didn't mean they disliked him. They didn't go around Some of them might names. have secretly voted for him and <laughs> said they were voting for Greitens. I know I'm, nothing about that. I'm not going to delve into that, but continue. So I, I am concerned about the divisiveness in our country, and I don't know how to resolve that. And, and it's something that bothers me, and I try not to contribute to it. I will say that. I, I was disappointed in what I felt was some name-calling that happened over session the last couple of days. So I had that discussion with people and, and felt like, you know, I don't want to be labeled as not caring about poor people or oppressed people or people who are um, of a different race, creed, color, because I voted against something. Uh, you know, the charter school bill is, is coming up. And a lot of people who support charter schools support them because we feel like it is one way to help people who are in poverty, which in, in the St. Louis area tends to be a lot of people of color, and it's a way to lift people up. And we feel it uh, like we're not doing enough, and this is one thing we can do to help. Now, when my Democratic colleagues vote against the charter school expansion, I'm not going to turn around and call them racist. Because I don't think that's fair. But sometimes I will be called racist because I voted uh, against a minimum wage increase. I would like to delve into more of that that, that particular bill because that passed yesterday. I think it was sent to the Senate. But the bill you're right. referring to is St. Louis City passed a, a ordinance a couple of years ago raising the minimum wage to $11. It was kind of held up for a couple of years as it went through the court process. But the Supreme Court ruled that it was legal. For I would say technical reasons, but primarily because the 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 law which they which the opponents were trying to say it's not legal apparently was not constitutional. It's it's kind of a complicated situation, but the the upshot is that the the minimum wage increase stands, and this bill would basically ban all local jurisdictions from being able to raise the minimum wage and effectively wipe out St. Louis's minimum wage increase. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. That's correct. So you mentioned it was a pretty heated debate, and I would imagine it would be because many, I mean, the entire St. Louis city delegation is Democratic. The minimum wage has been kind of a Democratic issue for for many years. Kind of delve into more why you think it got so, so heated and emotional. Well, people believe that by raising the minimum wage, there's a group of people, particularly Democrats, who believe that by raising the minimum wage that they really are going to help people in their communities. And they're very passionate about that. I completely disagree. I think that they will be hurting people in their communities. 
from an economic standpoint, and, and they argue against this, but from an economic standpoint, when you raise them in a wage, you have fewer jobs. When you start talking about these businesses, they, they can only hire so many people. We're already seeing more and more automation, which means fewer and fewer jobs. If you're having to pay somebody nearly twice, I mean, the, the minimum wage of $15 is almost double what the current minimum wage is, you're going to have fewer jobs. And, the, and the, the level of unemployment that we have in certain areas of St. Louis City is completely unacceptable. If we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it's going to go up even higher. I am 100% convinced of that. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle are not convinced of that. So I think they're hurting their community. They think they're helping it. We both want to help the community. So that's why it gets personal, because, because both sides feel like the other side doesn't get it. The other side wants to hurt, or we want to help, and that's why it, it gets heated and it gets emotional. So, it, again, it's not because one side's bad and one's evil. It's because we disagree about how to get the result, not because we disagree on what we really want. And what we want is more people working. The, the added kind of nuance in this debate is uh, St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger said two years ago that the county was not going to follow suit on this because he said by its charter they, he could not force municipalities in St. Louis County to raise the minimum wage, which means the only thing St. Louis County could conceivably do is raise it in the unincorporated areas for him that was impractical. So you do have a situation now, let's say this bill doesn't end up passing, that St. Louis and St. Louis County would have different minimum wages. Now, some people say that's a good thing. It, it would maybe could attract people to jobs in St. Louis as opposed to St. Louis County. Other people say otherwise. How does that factor into the debate? Well, I, th- I think you're going to have people wanting to move their, more people wanting to move their businesses out of St. Louis City. I mean, they're already dealing with a 1% tax on wages. And if, if you're going to grow beyond a certain number of employees, and then you're going to be forced to pay that higher minimum wage, maybe it would behoove you to move out to the county if you wanted to grow your business. Because there's, a there's I, I believe it's 15, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's 11. 11. But, so, but it initially was pitched as 15. Okay. But, but continue. So if you want to grow your business past 11 employees, now you're going to have to pay a higher minimum wage. That's a huge increase to your payroll. Mm. So why not move outside city boundaries? Why don't you move your business outside of city boundaries? Because then you don't have to comply with the law. So there, there's that one aspect. The other thing is, I mean, I, th- I can foresee companies going out of business or moving outside the city boundaries so they don't have to deal with this. Because we're not talking about a lot of skilled work. So we're not talking about companies who are pay- paying skilled labor or skilled employees under $15 an hour. You, you can't keep people at that rate, right? Um, I know a business owner, he does a temp, temp to hire, temp to full-time, and starts everybody at minimum of 10 bucks an hour. It's in South, South St. Louis County. You have to pass a drug screen, and you have to have one good reference, and he can put you to work. You cannot find enough people to work. Cannot find them. They'll work a couple days, they'll get a paycheck, and then they move on. And this is not in an impoverished area, but it's also not in a thriving, wealthy area. So I don't think it's uh, it's something that just goes on like in West County or North County. I mean, it's a it's it's in a Shrewsbury, Webster area. There's a there's a problem finding good employees. The, one of the issues we have, I'm on workforce development. Mm-hmm. One of the issues we have is not being able to find good people to work. And the number one 
reason that has cited in survey after survey is lack of work ethic. So if you're going to take a chance on an employee and hiring an employee, would you be more likely to take a chance on them at minimum wage or at 15 bucks an hour? I mean, if you're an employer, right? So you might be willing to put up with more for three or six months while they learn the ropes at minimum wage than at $15 an hour. So I, I think the issues around our workforce are not about a controlled wage. It's about finding people who want to work and who are, who are willing to, again, make sacrifices. If you want things, sometimes you have to make sacrifices. Sometimes it sacrifices you got to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Or it means you, you can't do drugs anymore so you can pass a drug test. That's not to say that there aren't people out there looking for work that can't find it, because I know there are. That That is definitely the case. And I still think that there is a disconnect between to a certain extent, employers and employees and matching them up because we do have employers who can't find good people and we have good people who can't find jobs. But we also have um, a big problem in our workforce with work ethic and it's been cited again in study after study. I'm so interested to know what those studies are, but I also, it sounds like that's not your brand of how economic development will happen in Missouri or St. Louis area. What what is not? Raising the the minimum wage? Yeah. No. So Absolutely not. <laughs> what is what is the answer for you? How do we how do we as a city, as a as a county, as a state move forward? Well, that's a great question, and 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 you know I have a lot of ideas. You know, and I don't think there is a silver bullet. You know, I wish there were, and then I could say if we just did this, it would fix everything. I think the you know the workforce issue is a, is a huge problem. Um, some of those statistics actually come from the Department of Economic Development of Missouri. We just had a presentation two weeks ago from them. Um, and then St. Louis Community Colleges also did a survey and found almost identical issue of uh, work ethic. Communication skills were the top two problems. I think critical thinking and then technology issues. So, you know, Bruce Franks has a program actually in the city that has to do with not just skills training but mentoring and they've been very successful, but he'll tell you it's very expensive to spend that one-on-one time training somebody on being at work on time, being respectful, showing up on, on, a, on a regular basis. And I think programs like that are great. And I don't know enough about it to, to speak on it too much, but he's very passionate about it and he has had some success, but he'll be the first to tell you it's it's extremely expensive. I would like to see for me in St. Louis, I think that we have some key industries that can really grow our economy and across across the board. So we, we already have some strengths in healthcare. We are the number one place in the world for plant-based science research. Those are high-paying jobs, but there are also jobs that come with that, that around that. I think um, logistics, where we sit in terms of being the northernmost ice-free port on the Mississippi River, we can do more with our ports. I know they just signed a deal with the Port of New Orleans to do some things with the ports. To take advantage of the fact that the need for freight is going to double in the next 10 years. So between railroads, highways, river travel, we're in a great position to take advantage of that. Now you're talking about jobs at every end of the spectrum. So you're talking about unskilled labor, skilled labor, logistics, technology, all different kinds of jobs that, that fit into that. When you have that much of a demand you will see more companies who will be doing their own training programs, right? I mean, 
I remember when you got hired and then they trained you. Now they want you to be trained for any job before they hire you. And part of that's because the economy's been kind of down. If we can get our economic engine going, where we have companies that are so in such demand of labor that they're willing to train people, I think that that demand for labor will ex- it, there will be a benefit to that, and it, there will be people who maybe aren't the greatest worker in the world, but they pick it up eventually because there are so many opportunities that, that you know maybe they try here and it didn't work out, and then they go somewhere else. But I also think we we have to do some reforms to our our social safety net, which I, that's unpopular. But um, we have a terrible record in Missouri of getting people off welfare and back to work. People thrive when they're working. Most people don't want to be on welfare. So doing some creative things with helping people find training programs, find jobs that will get them out of poverty and and get them off of a a substance level of living to where they can actually improve their lives. Well, in the in the remaining 15, 20 minutes we have left, I want to talk about a couple of bills that you've sponsored. The first would raise the age of marriage in Missouri from right. 15 to 17. This has been written about by a number of news outlets, some at great length, but it was fascinating before the show reading about this this problem that it seems that Missouri has become a haven for forced child marriages because the age is so low here. So I want you to kind of delve into why you decided to sponsor this bill and what problem it's trying to stop, because it's a problem I didn't really think about until I, I read about it further. Well, the, the problem has to do with trafficking, human trafficking, um, and it's not something people like to think about and people don't really know about. Part of my job has been, since I filed the bill, is educating some of the other members on what this issue is. And there was a high-profile piece done last summer by a a news station here in town that exposed how people are bringing their children here to marry them off. And uh, there was one case where a man brought his daughter down from Idaho. She She was 14 and pregnant, and when she turned 15, he brought her here to marry her rapist, who was in his 20s. And unfortunately, he was not the custodial parent so they contacted the actual custodial parent who was guardian, the mother, who said, no, 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 we're not marrying our daughter. I believe the father is now serving prison time, and so was the, the man who would have been her husband. So that high-profile case started opening some people's eyes. Additionally, last year they did a task force on human trafficking in the legislature, and they really looked at um, the state and why is this happening here and why have we become sort of the epicenter for this and one of the things that they discovered is that oftentimes parents are involved in trafficking their own children, which is um, more horrible than I can even imagine. I can't even imagine why they would do that. Do you have any reason reasons that you've been given? No, but then I, I'll, I'll see articles uh, occasionally in the paper of people who've been accused of some sort of indecent act with their children, and there's usually uh, a partner involved— and it's so disgusting to talk about. And, and it's very difficult sometimes to even read those articles because they're so disturbing. But it does happen. And, you know, I, I've visited with um, Catherine Hannaway several times, and she really championed arresting some people who were part of these pornographic rings and, and child abuse rings. And it's it's very disturbing, but it does happen. And 
the human trafficking thing has really been coming to light more, I think, in the last few years. I think that movie Taken kind of like caught people off. It was a popular movie and it, it alerted some people to this issue. But in that case, it was like a, a, a wealthy girl who was sort of kidnapped. And, and although that does happen, more often than not with these young girls, it's a family member or they've run away from home and they found themselves in a difficult situation. And so they've latched on to some sort of male or female who is giving them food and shelter and providing for them and then eventually want something in return. And it's usually some sort of trafficking. Mm-hmm. So by raising it to 17, and I think it also would no longer like allow a court to overturn a recorder of deeds that denies a marriage license. Is that correct, first of all? Right. Because currently the way the law is written, it says a judge can marry. So really there is no floor. Mm-hmm. A judge could marry 12-year-olds if they wanted to. And this will say no judge can marry anyone under 17. Mm-hmm. So why do you, how do you think this will help stop the problem we just talked about? Well, it's really a legal loophole. I mean, 17 is the age of consent. So I'd like to see it to be 18 because you have to be 18 to sign a contract, and marriage is a contract. But at 17, at least you are legally of age. So we're not allowing people to marry below below an age when they're legally supposed to be having consensual relations with someone of the opposite sex. So that's the design of the law, to at least attack it from that perspective. We don't want children getting married. We protect children from buying alcohol, from buying cigarettes. They can't serve the country. They can't vote. Oh, why are we not protecting them from, from this? And there's been studies that show that their brains aren't really cognitively developed enough to make that kind of commitment. And the other thing is that what I learned through this process is that women who marry before the age of 18 are much more likely to end up in poverty, um, addicted to drugs, and in abusive situations. So there's another reason. Um, Where is it kind of in the process now? And do you expect it to come to the House floor soon? So the marriage bill passed unanimously out of the Children's and Children and Families Committee and then passed unanimously out of rules. So it is on the calendar to go on the floor. And my understanding is it's going to come up this week. So uh, it'll be perfected and then third read. And if it's passed, it will go to the Senate. And I don't currently have a Senate sponsor. So if there's anybody out there listening in the Senate who wants to sponsor my marriage bill in the Senate. 34 <laughs> options out yeah, there. Yeah, that's but, right. But um, I'm sure that we'll be following that. Um, in an article in 2016, your daughter had moved from St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, and part of the reason you decided to run for office was because you wanted her to come back. That's true. Um, That's true. And you've mentioned that she's visiting, so I'm mm-hmm. guessing she still hasn't moved back. No, she she hasn't. They still live in Tulsa. and. It wasn't just her. I mean, obviously, that's an emotional reason is is having good jobs here and a great place for my grandchildren to grow up in. And I think a lot of legislators feel the same way. Like, we want our kids and our grandkids to have the same opportunities that we've had, and we love our state. But I've been coaching for a long time, and, and I keep seeing these really bright, talented kids go off to college, and then they don't come back. And the reason they don't come back is they're getting jobs in other cities. So you know, why is that? You know, what's going on? And and even people that I that I know or who are my age who maybe lost jobs in the downturn and they're working again, but they've never gone back up to where they were, either in terms of a challenging work environment or the, the, the sort of money they were making. We were just really lagging behind. So I started looking at that statistically and, and just seeing how we just were so far behind as a state. And why is that? And there are a lot of 
different reasons for that, and, and, and people have different ideas. And again, statistics, you can make them kind of say what you want, but our growth has not been anywhere near what it has been nationally, and a lot of people would say nationally it's been lagging. So, you know, what do we need to do to get our state growing again and make this a great place to live, work, and raise a family? Sorry, I just wanted to, um, I mean, we so we've talked about it twice now, that like economic growth and also population growth. Missouri mm-hmm. has suffered a lot of population loss. Right. Um, a lot of advocates in the immigrant community have been pointing to immigrants as a big source of population, entrepreneurship, tax revenue, mm-hmm. all of the benefits of sort of what you're talking about, these mm-hmm. gaps in what Missouri has. Um, I guess... Have you considered that as an option? Are you trying to make Missouri a more immigrant-friendly state? I, I hadn't really thought about making Missouri a more immigrant-friendly state. I feel that legal immigration is a great way to grow our state. I'm not a fan of illegal immigration, um, like most Republicans, I would say. But we're not uh, growing as a population and naturally. So people aren't having as many children. So the way for us to grow is through immigration, but it has to be legal, in my opinion. And I I feel that that's a great way to grow. Now, I haven't really thought about, like, how friendly we are to immigrants. I, I, I guess I don't think about those things. So what do you mean by that, being friendly? What do you mean, to be, like, to attract more legal immigration? Is that what you're saying, or is there something else that you— To immigrants generally. I mean, I, I'm not really speaking about—I mm-hmm. mean, I think the distinction is an important one, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I do—I mean, like, the International Institute just highlighted this new American economy study that talked about the billions of dollars that immigrants bring mm-hmm. in— um, so I guess when I ask that, I mean, are you trying to look into partnerships with like working with organizations like that? Are there I mean, but it sounds like maybe that's not something that's, that's on your radar. No, not really. I will say that I know through the Cortex like they have brought in some international companies here. And with that, you get immigrants. Um, I have a number of friends who are not uh, natural born American citizens. They're either have become citizens or they're still citizens of the countries from which they came. I I will say back in the 90s when we had a big influx of Bosnian immigration, I, it was a huge boon for our city. I mean, there were neighborhoods in South City and even parts of South County that had really started to deteriorate. And then with the growth of that immigrant population, you could see them become transformed and be more thriving, safer neighborhoods again because of that uh, immigrant population. And you're talking about people who come here with nothing and then just work like crazy to make a life here for their families and which is how most of us got here somebody along the line came here from somewhere worked their tail off to establish a family you know build a home build a business so I'm definitely in favor of that and attracting businesses. I think it's difficult to attract people from anywhere, whether it's other states or other countries, if you don't have a thriving economy. And if you don't have accredited schools, which I know we we do have accredited schools now in the city, but St. Louis City is not currently attracting people from other countries or other states because of their public school system. You know, that's something that I think we need to work on both in the city and throughout the throughout Missouri. The the last issue I want to talk about 
before we wrap this up is another bill that you have sponsored that would expand the ability for hemp oil to be used. Now, my understanding right now, it can only be used for epilepsy and your bill would expand its usage. Is that correct? That's correct. So the current legislation, which passed a couple of years ago, and it was sort of rushed through and it, it was groundbreaking to be able to use CB, CBD oil, sort of the short name for it. Uh, because of the narrowness and because of some things that have come up w- in the medical community, very few people are able to take advantage of this. So we know there are about 18,000 Missourians with intractable epilepsy that could possibly benefit from the CBD oil, and less than 100 currently are. Now, multiple reasons for that. One is only a neurologist right now can write a note. Most of the neurologists work for hospitals, and most hospitals don't want their neurologists writing that note. So we want to expand that to whoever that physician is that is treating that patient, not just a neurologist. Uh, We want to expand the number of licenses that we issue so more people from across the state can access it. Uh, I've heard from people who drive five hours to get the doctor's note. It has to be delivered in person, and so does CBD oil. And then they got to go five hours in another direction, get the oil, and then go back home. So they're already dealing with many times a child who is suffering from a debilitating illness, and now they're having to drive all over the state just to to get some sort of care for that. So that's one part of the bill. It also allows for slightly more THC because that will apply to more people with epilepsy. Now, there's still no way for somebody to possibly get high off of CBD oil. I mean, there's not enough THC in there that if you swam in it and drank it, you know, you, you, you couldn't possibly get high. But I think that the fact that we're calling it hemp oil or the word mm-hmm. cannabis is in it, I think probably arouses some opposition among maybe some of your Republican colleagues who who see it that way. Is that fair to say? I think that's that's fair to say, you know, and I think if you'd asked me a year ago how I felt about medical marijuana, or well, I didn't even know what CBD oil was, but medical marijuana, I would have said, nah, no way. And then I got educated about it. So again, it's a part of it is educating people, talking to people who can benefit from this, talking to these families, and then learning that this is this is not people out on the street corner saying I have a headache, walking into a dispensary, and getting a big old joint to smoke. I mean, that's that's the perception I think out there, and and that's not what it is. <laughs> is that funny? Well, it, it it is, but it's a serious situation, it and is. there and there are states which basically allow for people to go in, get regular marijuana, and, you know, smoke it in in the humorous way that you said. Illinois, for example. Though I think Illinois is pretty limited compared to some other states. But that's well, a, that's an entirely different discussion. The, the other thing guess. that I've learned a lot about in the last year is the ho- opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And so that has made me start to favor medical marijuana in general just because marijuana is much less addictive than opioids and, and can heal some of this, not heal, but treat the symptoms of some of the same problems. So, you know, I know people think of marijuana as it's it's a drug, as in a bad drug, as in war on drugs. Well, all these other drugs are drugs too. And a lot of them have horrible side effects, particularly for epilepsy, but even some of the drugs that people use, whether they're opioids or other types of mood-altering drugs, where the medical marijuana could actually treat those symptoms better with fewer side effects. Mm-hmm. But it's still federal law, and, and that's what we're dealing with. And then the skepticism we get from the doctors, even some of the doctors in our caucuses, there hasn't been as many tests done 
on marijuana and CBD oil because of the way it's regulated. Yeah, that is, and, and what you mentioned, too, about the federal aspect is kind of the elephant in the room. Right. Because the Obama administration was probably a lot less stringent. We don't know what the Trump administration is going to do for states that either have legalized marijuana completely or with medical marijuana. I know I mentioned this because Missouri, there was, a, there was a ballot initiative that almost got on the ballot that would have legalized medical marijuana. There's been talk about it going through the legislature. I'm wondering if the whole federal cloud is kind of clouding that entire discussion. Well, I think it it, it is. When you tell me a new administration, you don't know what's going to happen. But uh, recently, the Trump administration came out in favor of medical marijuana. So that was a good thing, um, at least in my at least in my mind. But as far as the ballot initiative, well, I would like to see this come through the legislature because I think that um, it does need to be controlled. And we we don't want people walking into the local dispensary claiming they have a headache and, and then walking around high. I mean, there are obviously some negative effects to having a lot of THC in your body, and it, it is mood-altering. But to my knowledge, no one's ever OD'd on marijuana, and it doesn't have the physically addictive properties that opioids and some of the other mood-altering drugs do that are out there. Yeah, and I'm just, I just pulled up something from USA Today, and it's Dateline Denver, of all places. America's <laughs> marijuana industry isn't sure where President Trump and his attorney general stand on marijuana, but is forging ahead with expansion plans anyways. Um, it's, I mean, once Colorado and Washington, I think California recently legalized it too. Medical marijuana, it, yes. And I think, is it also recreate? You're from California, yeah, Jenny. Yeah, it's not recreational. It's not recreational. But, um, but I am interested to know, yeah. I mean, your position on medical marijuana changed because you got educated or you like learned a lot of different things about it. Do you think it's possible for your position on recreational marijuana to change? I don't know. There, People talk to me about that sometimes, and, and I... I'm not there yet, I, and I don't see myself getting there. You never say never, um, but there are there are members of my caucus who believe that marijuana should be legalized. They take a very libertarian um, viewpoint. They think the war on drugs is a tremendous waste of time and energy, particularly with regard to marijuana. I, I do feel like the criminal nature. I mean, we have you know we have people in jails who, for possession of marijuana. They've been there for 10 years. It seems a little extreme, but I don't know enough about it to be, you know, obviously any sort of authority on it. I've, I've also heard the debate, it's, it's not as harmful as alcohol. That may be true. Um, but we're so far down the road with alcohol that we, we know what prohibition does. Now, on the other hand, the fact that alcohol is legal doesn't mean we don't have an alcohol problem in our country. We, we still do. So my concern is, well, if we legalize marijuana, are we going to have a bigger problem? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And, and I, I just want to be clear for our listeners so we're not complaining the issue that the, the hemp oil situation and medical marijuana are two separate issues. Absolutely. But, but I, I, am, I, am, I just want to make sure that everyone is clear on that because I don't want them to be conflated. But they are two issues that I think the legislature is talking about kind of simultaneously. Yes. And we just had a hearing a week or two ago on a medical marijuana bill, and it's different than the CBD oil. If that were to pass, the CBD oil bill would be – we wouldn't even need it. Mm -hmm. So um, there is some linkage, but – there, right. th these are different types of treatment for for for, for things, right. and I want to make that abundantly clear so we're we're, we're not confusing people. But well, continue. Well, I appreciate that because it is confusing, 
and I'm still learning about it. And as I learn about it, I'm trying to, to educate others. But then I find other uh, of my colleagues and also physicians who know more about it, and I'm learning from them. So, you know, we just need to be open, I think, to other ideas. It doesn't mean we have to change our mind, but I think we have to listen. And I think that, you know, we come back around, if we want to go full circle, mm-hmm. to talking about, you know, both sides of the aisle in Jeff City, or if we're talking about, you know, somebody who used to be your best friend and neighbor, but you find yourself on opposite ends politically, can you just listen and appreciate the fact that you disagree? You know, I I think there's just way too much divisiveness. And people who are afraid to share their opinions about anything because they're in a crowd of people who don't share them, and if they do, there's going to be anger, or there's going to be resentment, or they're going to be excluded. I mean, I, I can't remember a time when politics has been this divisive in the public discourse, but I can tell you, for me, I go out to dinner with Republicans and Democrats and people who disagree with me in Jeff City pretty consistently, and we seem to get along. So if we can do it, surely a couple of people who've been friends for 20 years and have many shared memories can get past voting for different presidential candidates in the last election. Well, we appreciate you going full circle so I didn't have to awkwardly segue <laughs> into the end of this show. You you are a master at this and I salute you. Oh, thank you. So for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at J-N-N-S-M-N. That's your name without any vowels, by yes, the way. Yes, exactly. And how would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the so World Wide Web? On Twitter, it's Mo Rep Evans mm-hmm. at Mo Rep Evans and then you can find me on the House website. Which is uh, www.house.mo.gov. Yes, that's correct. And then I do have a website, Elect Gene Evans. All right. Well, until next time, so long. Thank you. Mm-hmm.